Welcome to the Short Term Show, the show about short term rentals and long term wealth, with real property owners hosting real properties who are crushing it in the vacation and short term rental space. And here's your host, Avery Carl. Hey, Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Avery. Just so thrilled to be here. <laughs> awesome. Well, we are very interested in hearing your story. So will you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, how you got into real estate investing? Sure. Uh, so by day, I'm actually a pharmacist. I'm in the IT executive world. And so just working hard. Uh, my husband and I, we spent years uh, working on paying off our student loans. And uh, once we accomplished that goal, we were looking for a way to really um, start investing in a way that would really um, catapult our savings. So after spending years and years of not doing much saving at all, we uh, recognized that real estate was definitely uh, an avenue and short-term rentals, uh, just looking at the numbers compared to some of the other uh avenues and some of the other strategies, short-term rentals really seem to be the way to uh, just exponentially increase our savings and our growth. And so we decided to go that route. Awesome. So what market are you investing in? What's your portfolio look like? I know you own some and you manage some for other people. What does that mix look like? Sure. So uh, currently we uh, started off investing right in our backyard. Uh, we went the route of, you know, we looked around, we we're looking for the best possible deals. But since my husband and I, we are W2, we work full time and we actually are not all that handy. We did not end up investing in some of the more uh, distressed properties that, you know, were at the lower end and provided some of the best uh, entry uh, into the real estate world. So our properties are usually in the 200K and up realm. Uh, we started in our backyard in Georgia and we have expanded to the panhandle of Florida. Uh, we currently own rentals that we are managing in Georgia. We have one under construction in Florida. We're always looking to expand our portfolio as well in the Smokies, uh, in Myrtle Beach. But uh, we're also managing properties in the Poconos of Pennsylvania, and that's actually a new development as well. Oh, the Poconos. That's really cool. I don't own anything there, but I hear really great things about the Poconos. Yeah, that, that's another market. And I'm sure you're uh, seeing that a lot of these drive to markets, regional markets, those that are in um you know, New Jersey, New York, they drive over to the Poconos, just a couple hours drive to get out of the more uh, urban areas and more into the rural areas to get away from people. So it has been busy, busy, busy in the Poconos. Uh, I certainly believe that. Definitely. So tell me a little bit about your, you're in Atlanta, right? Atlanta, Georgia? Yes. Just south of Atlanta, Georgia in the suburban area. Okay. Awesome. I lived in Atlanta until I was about five. I don't remember anything about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is such a hot short term rental market and there are a lot of operators. And I think what really caused the boom was back when there was um, the Super Bowl several years ago. And so that really impacted the interest. And so it really, really boomed 
the whole Airbnb and short-term rental industry. So it's to the point where I think there, there's a lot of opportunity still, but definitely a lot of competition and a lot of, um, a little bit of saturation. And so we have a lot of regulatory stuff coming down the pike as well in Atlanta proper. I'm on the outskirts a little bit more, not necessarily rural, but um, more suburban. So outside of a lot of uh, that municipality. And so, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. There are a lot of operators here for sure. Tell me a little bit about what the regulations look like both in Metro Atlanta and then kind of outside on the outskirts in the suburbs. Okay, that's a great question. So, oh my goodness, it varies significantly. So there is one region, Brookhaven, and I don't want to misquote the regulations, but there is a um, a number of days limitation, and uh, the owner has to be on site, and or the owner who owns the property has to also live on the property, something to that effect in that particular um, region, uh, Brookhaven. That's considered Atlanta, really. Uh, there is um, uh, one particular city where it's banned, uh, and I think they're still working on lifting that ban. And in Atlanta, there's actually uh, an ordinance right now that's being argued um, back and forth. I think uh, where we stand at this moment is there's a limitation of the number of properties an individual can hold uh, for short-term rentals. For instance, if I want to operate in that particular uh, location, I can only operate something like three properties only, something to that effect. So it's still a work in progress. There's a lot of, uh, uh, I know rent responsibly, um, there, there are groups that are working together to try to uh, help the, the, those, the powers that be to see the benefit that it is bringing to the community and uh, root out the bad actors. Um, I believe there's a licensure associated with it as well. And then in my community, to be honest with you, there's no regulation, which is both scary and nice sometimes, but it's kind of scary because once, you know, it comes to fruition, uh, it may not be something that is the most favorable. So my fingers are definitely on the pulse with the regulatory uh, aspect of uh, my particular community where I'm investing, I'm the subject matter, matter expert. Uh, my eyes and ears are to the ground to make sure that I'm there if uh, they do anything that impacts uh, our, our business model. Cool. So you focus mostly on luxury short-term rentals. And I, I know you have a little bit of a different business model than a lot of short-term rental operators and owners. So can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So I'm of the mindset of diversification is key. So when we first purchased our property, again, as I mentioned before, we were wanting to go in finding the cheapest property possible. We went, I mean, we drove down to Alabama. We found a property for 17,000 that looks like it was put together by a crazy glue. And we, we, we just went all over the place looking for the most affordable property ever. And just the level of effort, the level of coordination at the time it would take to rehab that property, find the right contractors to keep them accountable. We, it was just, a, it, it was just way beyond what we could handle at that moment. And so my husband and I, we made the collective decision to go into um, a market 
that has um, a home, maybe it needs a little bit of repair. And I'll tell you a little bit about the book that made the impact on me. We realized that, so say it needs um, a roof. And I know that is a big repair, but that's just one thing, you know, a roof and some paint, you know? And so we, we really focused on those properties that would not take um, months and months to rehab, more like a, a few weeks. And instead of being a part of the We Buy Ugly Houses crowd, we are a part of the We Buy Pretty Houses crowd. So our properties are in uh, A A and B school areas, single family homes, four or five bedrooms. Uh, typically they um, really nice curb appeal, uh, just kind of nicer in neighborhoods. And we set them up as corporate rentals. We rent to anyone who, you know, is willing to book with us. But for the most part, uh, these are usually execs coming into town for a few months for a sabbatical uh, to do a lecture at you know a local university or um, to do some training at the hospital. We get a mix, uh, whether it's physicians, physicians assistants, nurse practitioners. Uh, and also we have been uh, working a lot lately with the insurance claims and insurance adjuster uh, companies who place uh, larger size families who are displaced from their homes for emergency situations, such as their house caught on fire, and they happen to live in our same community, our same neighborhood. And you know, there's such a such scarcity in terms of uh, this, um, you know, this product of a, a home that's fully furnished, that's large enough to fit them, their kids, grandma, and a couple of pets because we are pet friendly, that's one of our models as well. And so we have been the go-to for those insurance companies and we've been really happy to help them as well as to help solve that problem that they have in finding temporary housing for these people who are in need. That is a really unique idea. I haven't heard any other short-term rental investors talk about utilizing insurance companies. So. How did you come to that idea and how do you make connections with insurance companies so that you can be that go-to if they do have a displaced family that they need to place for a, a temporary living situation? That's a great question, Avery. And, you know, a lot of times it's just putting yourself out there and believe it or not, this is not something that I anticipated. It's not something that I planned on, but the beauty of it is short-term rentals are so versatile. Uh, there are over 50 use cases for them. Okay, so it's not just the individual that's going to vacation. It could be the, the individual that's going to work somewhere else, the workcationers or the flexcationers. And so they, the insurance companies, all of the ones that I've worked with, they've actually sought me out and they found me either on Airbnb, Verbo or corporatehousingbyowner.com. And so as they're scouting, they're looking for homes for their, uh, for their clients. Uh, I don't know whether or not their database may have been already filled up and all of the properties within their database, there was no availability. So they tend to go onto these platforms and they're looking for these types of homes. And I think as long as your home is set up, uh, you have great information, uh, it's staged well, uh, you have the photos. I mean, they can show that to the family. And if it's a family that's used to a certain standard and they see that, they, they select the home, they say, yeah, please reach out to them. 
And that's how they found me. And so once uh, we had a booking complete and all went well and we were paid on time and you know the relationship was there, I reached out and I said, okay, this was great. Um, how do I become your go-to? How do we do this again? Because I want to keep doing this. This was great. And so had I not entered into the short-term rental realm, I would not have known about this industry. And you're right, this is not something a lot of people are talking about, and this is not something a lot of people know about, but you can still get a really nice rate, uh, monthly rate close to what you're asking on, on your short-term rental platform uh, for 30 days. Um, and our 30-day uh, guests, they tend to stay 60, days 90 days i have one that's in it's been eight months because how long is it going to take to repair a house that's 75 percent burnt down right so you got to think of that too uh it's it's a lot of work it's a lot of materials there's a shortage in supplies so they've been extending 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 excellent excellent phenomenal guests and so I'm loving this and I've been sharing this information with some of the groups that I'm in and I've been trying to share and show others how to do it as well. So I'm thrilled about this um, avenue to listing our properties with them. That's really cool. So, you know, you're not just making a good profit for yourself. You're helping a family who is displaced from their home, you know, due to some kind of natural disaster or fire or what have you. That's got to be pretty rewarding. Absolutely. And I kid you not, every single time, Avery, I mean, there's such a satisfaction that comes with them saying, thank you. We not only were in the fire, they've been in a hotel probably for a week or so while the insurance is going back and forth in a hotel, a family of one of ours was a family of nine with two dogs in a hotel. The dogs were being boarded. So at that point, they were more than thrilled. Their original home was double the size of our home, like 8,000 square foot that burnt down. But imagine they come to our home, say, and this was this particular home, we were in the process of getting it fixed. They're like, please just let us in. So although I am more of the luxury class, I, I got to tell you, this home was not, not all the I's were dotted and not all the T's were crossed. So this is a little bit different from that vacationer who is looking for everything, everything. You know, there's a little bit of forgiveness within uh, that asset class as well. So not everything was perfect. Like I said, it could have used a little paint in between uh, the turnover, but the family was in a hotel, family of nine, with two dogs. So they were more than thrilled to uh, get that situation changed. That's awesome. Nine people, they had seven kids or were there some like grandparents mixed in there? There too? were grandparents mixed in there too. Yes. Okay. Grandparents. It was uh, the home, as I mentioned that they were in, it was a three generational home, oh. uh, 8,000 square feet. So okay. <laughs> the thought of seven kids makes me tired. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> cool. So let's zoom in on your pet friendliness really quick, because I am such a dog person. I have several rescue dogs and cats. Uh, my 13 year old dachshund chihuahua mix sleeps in the bed with me. She goes everywhere with us. And I wanted so badly to be pet friendly, but I found very quickly that other people don't take care of their pets the way that I do, or they don't clean up after their pets the way that I do. And it just kind of took 
one or two really big fluffy hairy dogs leaving tons and tons of hair woven into every surface like every cloth surface to just not do that anymore so tell me how you're managing that because that is a really great amenity to offer yeah i mean it's definitely a risky amenity and i gotta tell you it's once COVID hit uh we we changed to pet friendly prior to that we were not pet friendly either and so I realized once COVID hit, uh, I was starting to cater to more of the uh, relief workers, the healthcare professionals that were coming into town to take care of our community. And so for them, you know, that pet is a family member. That's what they've got. That's who they're traveling with. And I read the tea leaves and I was like, immediately I became pet friendly. And to be honest with you, um, it's, it's, we have not run into many, many issues at all. We do have, um, you know, our cleaners, they have a whole pet cleaning protocol. We also have the ozone machine that we utilize to make sure any pet odors uh, are, are cleared out. Um, and so it, it does take a little bit longer for them to clean. I don't know everything that goes into, you know, what that looks like in terms of cleaning. But when I go in to check for guests ready every now and then, I got to tell you, it's spotless and it, it looks great and it smells great. And I believe that even if um, it were not to be, it, it weren't to smell, you know, exactly as pristine as a place that was not pet friendly, which ours does, in my opinion. But um, pet owners are forgiven and pet owners forgiving and they get it and they get. Yeah, this smells a little bit like dogs. So if that's something that's holding you back. I would say don't let it. Um, but as far as the hairs, um, our, our cleaning team, we do charge we do charge a bit extra, quite a bit extra for being pet friendly. Like it's a little bit more significant than our competitors because we are pet friendly. And so that covers any of the extra stuff that the cleaners have to do in order to get it back to guest ready. Gotcha. So talk to me about ozone machines really quick because uh, there are other uses for ozone machines. I saw a question in my Facebook group yesterday about uh, somebody had been smoking weed in their unit and they couldn't get the smell out for the next person and someone else suggested an ozone machine. So that can be something useful to have for an Airbnb or short-term, medium-term rental. What does that cost? Oh yeah, um, the ozone machine, I believe I got it off of Amazon for uh, right at, maybe right at 50 bucks. I don't think it broke the bank at all. So I wouldn't, I don't think it was a hundred bucks or anything like that. It was about $50. And so, yeah, uh, it's supposed to remove all the free radicals in the environment, kill the uh, microscopic organisms as well, and remove all the old, you know, all of those things you don't see. Uh, that are floating around uh, within the property, it's, it helps to remove it. It works really well in um, small, smaller confined spaces. So if it's a particular bedroom, you want to close the door and have that going, you know, in, in each bedroom, if you're going to have it in the living room, you know, you're going to have that going for a little bit longer, but there is a time cost to it as well, because uh, once that machine is going, uh, I believe you need to stay out of the area for an hour or a couple of hours as well because of some kind of hazard. I don't know all the details behind the technology, but um, that is my understanding. All the instructions are spelled out on there, but it, it is definitely worth the investment of 50 to 60 bucks. And it goes on sale every now and then on Amazon.com. 
Okay, awesome. I know I have been inside a a property. I think I don't remember where we were. It was years ago, and it had been a distressed property. I think the owners had died, and they were big smokers, and they had the ozone machines going in there. I don't think you're supposed to be in there while they're going. Unbeknownst to us as new investors, we were just walking through, spending 20, 30 minutes, and those things are they will choke you. <laughs> so, uh, but so are these small enough that you can just fit them in a closet and and store them for your next turn if you need them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say they're kind of the shape of maybe like a small lamp, like half the size of a small lamp. So definitely we, we keep one in the closets of all of our rentals. So it does not take much space at all. Awesome. So let's talk about how you came to start managing properties in the Poconos, because that's a long way from Atlanta. How did that happen? Yeah, so so that's going to come again with um, what we'll be discussing a little bit later. Networking, 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 uh, surrounding yourself with those who are like minded as you and um, just really letting others know what you're doing and and collaborating. And so to go far, we go together. Uh, this is actually an opportunity that came up with one of my GoBundance women sisters who has properties in the Poconos and she's in the process of uh, building a resort. And in that process, she realizes she does have some systems in place, but she needs to get them buttoned up and tightened up so that she can move on to this big, hairy, audacious goal that she has to uh, get this uh, resort up and going. So she owns and manages um, a concrete construction company, a pool company, HVAC. She owns several companies. And so she asked if I was willing and interested in partnering with her to work on managing um, the properties in the Poconos. She does know that I do manage a property here in Georgia as well. And I told her, yeah, I'd be thrilled to jump on and help out. And so really, really thrilled about that um, and expanding my property management portfolio a bit and uh, growing here in Georgia and hopefully in Florida in the next uh, few years or so. Uh, GoBundance is the great connector of real estate investors. I'm going to have to get on the Facebook group and, and get her on the show because I want to hear about that resort that she's building. Yeah. Oh yeah. She's, she's, uh, she's definitely a, the brainchild behind so many projects in her location. So uh, I'm glad to make the connection. She's amazing. Awesome. Now let's flip flop back to Atlanta. I probably should have done that before I asked about the Poconos, <laughs> but uh, so how are you financing these properties when you find them? So I'm, I'm interested uh, for sure in any avenue of financing that's um, that's possible and that's available to me but I have been financing them the traditional way using uh, whether it's a first mortgage or a second mortgage or um, an investment mortgage, that type of way. So all of our um, loans are for the most part conventional uh, for the lot that we have. It's more of a commercial loan because we're going to be constructing on that. So not sure what the financing will look like ultimately with that. But um, my husband and I, we just, save as much as we can possible to come up with that down payment and you know do a 30 year and so we're big fans of that 30 year mortgage and everything that comes with it i do um we attempt to you know get the 20 percent down so that we can avoid pmi but sometimes we we don't quite 
hit that target. So sometimes it's just 15% down and we do have a PMI on several of the properties, but I mean, they're cash flowing even with that in place and hopefully we'll refinance them. There's a ton of equity in them and uh, either refinance or sell them to um, kind of bump up and move up to the next class of properties is what we, we think we will do. That's awesome. A lot of investors get so caught up in, in creative financing that they don't think about, like I have people call me sometimes who want to buy something with me in one of the markets that we're in and say, okay, I need a hard money lender. I'm like, why, why are you going to flip something? Well, no, I just need a hard money loan so I can buy this property. I'm like, for what? Can you not get a conventional? Well, yeah, I can, but you know, I just heard on a podcast, you know, that's what you do when you're investing in real estate. And I'm like, no guys, like, you're way too far out in the wheel, the real estate investing weeds. Just get max out those conventional loans because that's the cheapest money you can get. It's the easiest money you can get. The interest rate's going to be the best. You're just going to have the most options. So I am a big fan of the conventional financing route. You don't have to just, you don't have to get crazy and do these really advanced real estate investing financing strategies when you have 10, well, depending on how much you own, you have 10 conventional mortgages sitting right out there in front of you. So I'm a big fan of maxing those out before you do anything crazy or creative. Absolutely. And that's our goal as well um, is to get to our 10 and then we're going to move on to something commercial if, if necessary. But I was, I was one of those investors too. I thought, yeah, let me do the hard money. Yeah. That's what everyone's saying to do. But when I sat down and looked at those numbers, I was like, this, fee for what and that fee for what and this and it's there was no way that that made sense to me personally and so maybe you know maybe they know something i don't know but it did not make sense and so for those who are busy professionals you know i work with a lot of busy professionals that i kind of i'm showing how to do this leverage that w2 and get that conventional loan till the cows come home is my recommendation <laughs> I 100% agree. And I think a lot of people, when they start re researching real estate investing and they haven't done it and they listen to a lot of podcasts and read a lot of books, it's really important to remember to tailor your strategy to the market that you're in currently. Because, you know, a lot of these people, when you're listening to their stories on podcasts, you know, they bought stuff 10, 15 years ago. And, you know, maybe they bought in, some small town in Indiana that doesn't really fluctuate in, in appreciation and there's not a lot of jobs. So there's not a lot of people coming in and making multiple offers. So you can't just listen to a strategy that somebody used in a small town in Indiana and go recreate it in Nashville, Tennessee, because they're totally different markets, totally different timeframes. So just because something worked for somebody else at a different time doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for you right now. Absolutely. When I'm uh, masterminding with my mentor, uh, when she talks about the $5,000 home she bought that's paying her a cash flow of $400 a month, you know, that is stuff worth salivating off of. You know, <laughs> where in this world am I going to find a $5,000 home? You know, yeah. so you're right. It's, it's not going to be applicable. So um, definitely look at the market that you're in. It's, you know, whatever deal that you 
uh, create because deals, you create your deals. So whatever deal that you create, it just has to make sense for you. And it has to make sense of your current market and your current time and have some exit strategies in mind as well. And I know that when I went into short-term real estate investing, when we were buying that first property, we went in with fear and trembling, okay? Coming from just W2 people, this is kind of venturing out on a limb as someone who has never done anything entrepreneurial before, been entrepreneurial minded, but never did it before. We went in with fear and trembling, but we had to take a step back. Uh, the property we bought was $290,000 in a $400,000 neighborhood that we could walk to. We knew this neighborhood like the back of our hand. We're like, there is no way. And so not only did we... Um, Put an offer on it we told them no contingencies no we're not asking for anything we want this property and and when it went on the market we put in an offer an hour after it went on the market we were number seven in line and you know what we won that we got the property because others that were outside of the area they're asking for things oh um we're gonna need this we're gonna need that we're gonna need closing costs and asking the seller who um, kind of just inherited the home from a parent that passed away, asking for all this stuff. And this seller was not you know, wanting to deal with it. We said, we wanted nothing. Just give us a home. We will close. We will close with the quickness. We want nothing. And we won uh, that property. We were thrilled for one minute and then fear and trembling set in. Well, what if you know this? And what if that? What if it would not rent as a short-term rental? So I say, take a step back. We can rent it as a long-term rental. What if it won't rent as a long-term? What if there's nobody who needs housing? You know, so that <laughs> started to kind of catastrophize, catastrophize everything. And then I said, well, you can sell it because you bought it at such, you know, um, so below market, you can sell it and still be okay. So just went through those scenarios, worst case scenario. And we're like, okay, we're fine. And so as we're going through the renovation, we listed it, it had booked like gangbusters. And so we haven't looked back since. So, I mean, it, it's been such a great ride so far. We love, uh, we love short-term renting. <laughs> There really is no nervousness like the nervousness between the time you get under contract and the time you get your first booking in your first short-term rental. I remember that so well. I remember us staying up until like two o'clock in the morning wondering, wow, did we just spend our whole life savings on something that's not going to work? What if this doesn't work? And all these crazy what ifs. And then as soon as we got it live on Airbnb, it started booking and that just a wave of relief came over us after that. So I... I try not to lose sight of that when we're working with clients too, about how nervous it really does make you at first. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and I'm just so grateful for you, what you and Luke, what you do with the education piece. Not only do you um, share the information as to how much it would, the property would potentially make if, you know, these certain changes were, uh, uh, were made and how it's set up and what to look for, what to avoid and all the pitfalls. I mean, that's invaluable because I kid you not, when I was looking for um, a short-term rental, you know, I did what, you know, I, I, I want to buy a house, a short-term rental. What's the smart thing to go do? Let me, let me find a realtor. Let me go and speak with a realtor. And let me tell you, <laughs> no, it's not any realtor uh, will lead you in the right direction when it comes to short-term rentals. I highly recommend that the realtor is very 
Um, it's a niche. First of all, it's a niche industry. And even if the realtor has been around, you know, for a long time within that area, they may not know what makes a good short-term rental. It's not necessarily going to be the number of bedrooms or the number of schools or, or the grade of the school and so on and so forth. These are the things that realtors um, pride themselves and and knowing and helping their clients to get to. But there are so many other things that comes with uh, short-term rentals and not all realtors have that knowledge. And so I, I'm so grateful for the education piece that you guys provide at the short-term shop because I don't see anyone doing that. And when I started out, we didn't have access to that back then. So kudos to you guys. Thank you. Yeah, we didn't have access to that either. So it's definitely a much different world now than when we started in terms of short-term rentals. So uh, Rachel, we are coming to the end of the show. We have three questions left that we ask everyone. So the first one is, what advice would you give 20-year-old Rachel? My advice would be to just invest in my network, invest in my relationships, uh, learn, learn, learn as much as I can in terms of investing, short-term rental investing, real estate investing, just soaking in that information and learning as much as I can because it really makes a difference. Um, at being educated, having the people around you to give you sound counsel, that good network uh, can really change the trajectory of your, your business and of your future. Awesome. And kind of along those same lines, what advice would you give a new investor who is looking to get started today in today's market? I'll piggyback on the same thing. Surround yourself with smart people. Surround yourself with a good network. The relationships get that education. But most importantly, uh, the way you start is by starting. You got to start by starting. Start. <laughs> That is so true. You just have to pull the trigger and go and you learn by doing it. You can listen to as many people and ask as many people who have done it before as you want, but you're never going to have that feeling of, okay, now I know enough to do it. You kind of just have to do it and learn as you go for sure. And Absolutely. last question. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So last question, what is your favorite book that has impacted your mindset as an investor? Oh man, that's a great question. I have a ton of books that I read. I love to read, uh, read all of the bigger pocket stuff, you know, Brandon Turner and David Green. Uh, the book I think that made the real mindset shift for me, to be honest with you, it wasn't really a mindset book. It was more of an analytical book. So I live in spreadsheets all day. Um, I live in numbers, you know, as a pharmacist and in IT exec, it's just spreadsheets, numbers, spreadsheets, numbers. And when I read in one of the chapters, I believe it was the book on real estate investing by Brandon Turner, there was a table in there. And so coming from a background of being a, a consumer, a homeowner, where you don't buy a home with a, you know, plumbing problems, electrical problems, you don't buy a home with a roofing problem. That book broke down in one single table. Plumbing would cost, say, $10,000 to repair. And that repair should last 20 years. Roof should cost $5,000 to repair. And of course, it's depending on the side. And that repair would last 20 years. And it just broke down what all of these unknown, scary things were. And I kid you not, that month we purchased a home because 
it no longer being an unknown. Now we know if you can put a number to the actual, you know, uh, thing that you're afraid of and you're like, oh, that's what it costs. Okay. So either I need to save up for it or I have it saved and I can actually take some action and it's no longer an unknown. And believe it or not, my mind was blown. And, and that's really what did it for me to get me started. But ever since I've consumed a bunch, how Elrod's The Miracle Warning, um, <laughs> one. one thing, uh, just I consume all of that stuff. I'm a mindset junkie, but believe it or not, it was a numbers table in one book that just flipped the switch for me. <laughs> that's awesome. That's a great book recommendation. I definitely recommend all new investors, whether it's short-term or long-term investors, read that book. And uh, Rachel, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. If our listeners would like to connect with you, where can they find you? Sure. You can find me on Instagram at short-term gems. And so if you look for me there, you'll find me. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again so much for coming on and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for what you do at the short-term shop. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I just hope that other people, you know, I hope that people find it valuable because it really did, investing in short-term rentals did change our lives. So hopefully we can pass that on to other investors as well. Absolutely. And so many people are interested. I really hope they spread the word about this podcast and the education that you're offering because a lot of people need to hear this right now. Awesome. All right, Rachel, we'll catch you next time. Thanks so much for coming on. Bye now. <laughs>